very much, and we are very grateful. You, you didn't have to do that. <laughs> but thank you for getting some roses for my rose. Whose little rose bush, by the way, out in front of our house is doing absolutely magnificent for late October. You have rose bushes that are doing well? They are. It's amazing how well they're doing, isn't it? God is good. And the choir sings and the sun starts to shine. Thank you, folks. Very beautiful. Very beautiful. But um, thank you all very much. And the study is pure pleasure. It's pure pleasure. And it's an honor and a privilege to serve all of you and serve the sovereign God by way of you. So thank you for uh, tolerating me and giving me, giving us that, that privilege and that honor and that opportunity. Um, see, here she comes. Choir sings and the sun comes out. Yes, pardon me, please. I want you to have the answer to that question you have. Um, Ron and I like to talk theology an awful lot, as you can tell. And he had a question for me, and I did some research for him and wrote down that answer. So that's why I want you to have it. By the way, I encourage you all to do that. Um, if you have any questions about anything you read from Scripture in your daily devotions or or what have you, or, or any questions, issues, contemporary issues, how to view it biblically, get a hold of me that's, that, and, and our, our elders. That's, that's, that's what we're here for. That's, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So please don't hesitate to do that. I'm going to be researching something anyway. So I love to do that. It's, it's how I'm wired. It's what I do. So please don't hesitate at all to do that. Um, to our prayer guide, our global prayer guide from Voice of the Martyrs. This morning, I will take you to the very ancient land of Morocco in northern Africa. A very ancient land with an ancient and often troubled past. If you know your history, it was once part of the Carthaginian Empire. Then it fell into the hands of the Roman Empire. Then it went through troubled times, passing hands back and forth for a number of centuries from various invaders. It was part of France, French Morocco at one time, as late as the Second World War. So I will ask you to pray for brothers and sisters in Christ, and there are few of them, unfortunately. Very few who are in the ancient land of Morocco. And Morocco, according to the voice of the martyrs, is restricted. Morocco is ruled by a monarch who is purportedly a direct descendant of the prophet Muhammad and intends to govern the nation with Islamic principles. Although the North African country has experienced 1,400 years of Islamic oppression, Morocco's original inhabitants, the Berbers, were not Muslim. Islam was brought to the country by invading Arabs in the 8th century AD. Today, less than 1% of the population is Christian. The growth of Christianity has been very slow, with a major setback occurring in 2010 when hundreds of missionaries were forced out of the country. With the rise of digital technology, however, and social media, more Moroccans are coming to faith by way of modern technology. Nearly all Moroccans are Sunni Muslims. The government is the main persecutor there. <clears throat> Family, friends, and communities also, unfortunately, persecute Christian converts. There are no um, actual church buildings in Morocco. Bible distribution and missionaries are not allowed in the country at all. 
It is difficult to find fellowship for, what, for, for believers who are there. But networks of underground churches have developed in recent years. Most believers have not had access to God's word or discipleship. A number of Christians have been imprisoned on charges of Muslim apostasy or proselytizing for the Christian faith. About 35 million people live in Morocco, but only a few printed Bibles exist in the entire country. We need to get the Word of God into the hands of these folks, either by the printed page or technology. It is difficult to get a Bible, but believers access Scripture through creative methods like digital files on SD cards, which they can use on their mobile phones and tablets. Voice of the Martyrs, of course, supports various forms of outreach and provides aid to new converts to Christianity. So please pray for our brothers and sisters who are in the ancient land of Morocco. And, of course, uh, please remember all of our folks in prayer who... Uh, Warren mentioned just a short while ago. I know some of you folks have needs or concerns that uh, are not made public. We remember those as well. Please join us at uh, my folks' house um, tonight for prayer if, if uh, you feel so inclined. Um, I know I'm preaching to the choir. I'm sure you all, well, I hope, are wearing yourselves out and praying for the nation and our nation's role on the world stage. And as we creep closer and closer to this election, which who in the world knows what's going to happen uh, afterwards. Um, but it is our watch. And I encourage you folks to do your duty on this, our watch. Um, vote scripture. Vote biblical truth. Vote biblical morality. And if you ask me, on one issue, a Christian should cast their vote. On one issue, if none other, and there are many issues, but on this one issue, if none other, a Christian should stand and fight, wherever that fight may take us and lead us, and cast their vote. And that is to protect the lives of unborn children in the womb. That issue, if none other. And that may be the issue upon which this nation ultimately survives or falls, as God is my holy witness as I stand here. We are people of life, the God who is life, the source of life, and who gives life. And we are to fight, to promote, and to protect life at all costs on that one issue folks this nation may stand or fall and that's the issue upon which upon which we vote I know again pardon me for using that old quaint expression uh, I know I'm preaching to the choir for folks that are watching and for you that are gathered here but I want you, for the record, to allow me to do my duty. Thank you for permitting me to do my duty. I want you to know that your servant leaders of this church, this humble little church, wish to do their duty. Um, I think one of the reasons why our nation is in the sorry mess that it's in is because many in the past have failed miserably in doing their duty. 
and in speaking out against evil and in speaking for what is right and in opposing evil and defending what is right. And we plan on doing our duty. Amen, church? Wherever it may take us. Thank you. Let's pray for the situation at hand and for our brothers and sisters in the ancient land of Morocco. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, ruler of heaven and earth, one true living God, you who are our absolute and ultimate reality, you who are the source of life, of justice, of peace, of all that is best and bright and good that is in this world and it is in this universe. We worship you and honor you for who and what you are, Sovereign God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and there is no other but you, High King of Heaven. We thank you for the divine plan which spoke the universe into being and all that it contains. We thank you for this wonderful plan for the universe and all that it contains that you gave your blessed servant Paul and he has given to us, your children, your created, redeemed children. Thank you for creating us and making us, redeeming us to be part of the divine plan here and hereafter. Thank you for giving us the peace and assurance that this all is part of a plan devised in the mind and heart of you, O Sovereign God, before you spoke anything into being that exists. Thank you for making us part of the plan. In the cosmic struggle, knowing that we are part of the plan gives us great peace and great hope and great cheer and enables us by the truth of your word and the power of your spirit to be happy Christian warriors in this world on our pilgrimage on our way to our eternal home as Paul states in the passage we look at this morning we are as well as seated in the heavenly places already in Jesus Christ our Lord who is seated at the right hand of the Father on high we do thank you for our country and its place in history and its place on the world stage. We pray for its survival. We pray for its peace. Help us to maintain freedom and liberty here in our nation by peaceful means while we still have those peaceful means available to us. There are millions if not billions of people throughout this world who are counting on us to keep the flame of hope and freedom and liberty alive some way somehow in this world. Help us to do our duty, not only by our fellow citizens, but for their sakes as well. Which leads me to pray for our brothers and sisters in the ancient land of Morocco and Africa. Please, dear God, meet their needs. Every need that they have is as you know best. We are so ignorant in so many ways about our brothers and sisters there. Please help us some way, somehow, voice of the martyrs and by other Christian ministries to get more information about them, the help that they need, how we can help them. We pray for the gospel of Jesus to spread and grow throughout that troubled land that is held in spiritual darkness. Break the darkness with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your Son. Help us to get this sacred and immortal, everlasting word of God, your word, into their hands by any way just and necessary the printed page, or upon a screen somehow. 
For wherever your word goes, there is life and salvation. And your word never goes out without accomplishing its perfect work. We pray that you will bless the proclamation of your word by way of the Apostle Paul this morning from the ancient letter to the Ephesian Christians. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins and our faults and our failures as a country and as a people. Forgive us of our sins, O sovereign God. Wash us in the blood of the Lamb. Fill us with your spirit. Get, pick us up, clean us up, and send us on our way. As the happy Christian warriors on pilgrimage that the New Testament teaches and proclaims. I pray for the health and the welfare of every member of this church and those folks who are friends of ours that we are aware of. Bless them, keep them, heal them of their sicknesses and their diseases, fill them with the power of your spirit, help them to be powerful, magnificent witnesses for doctors and nurses and technicians and friends and family members, anyone and everyone that they meet. We pray, Father God, that you will heal them perfectly. May your perfect will be accomplished throughout their lives in the particular situations and circumstances that they're encountering now. And help us to do our duty by them all as a Christian family, as individuals. Help us to do our duty by our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, all of these brothers and sisters from all of these nations that we've been praying for all of these months. And thank you for giving us the opportunity as a church to put the Word of God into their hands and to help them in numerous ways with our resources. Forgive me, Lord, if there's anyone or any situation that I'm neglecting to pray for. Please forgive me. Forgive us of our sins, Lord God. Help us to be strong, especially in times such as these. It is our watch, and we are accountable. Help us to do our duty. By the power of your word and the power of your spirit, help us to do our duty in our neighborhoods, in our community, in our country, and in this world at large in any way that we can. Bless these folks who have sang this morning who truly have worshipped you in beautiful song, in beautiful verse. May everything that is said and done here this morning have an impact in eternity. And may everything that is said and done here this morning be pleasing to you. The meditations of our hearts, the words of our mouths, O oh Lord our God, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please and join me in reading the word of the Lord, the particular passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians that we're going to study this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. By grace you have been saved. The gospel message. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 5 to 10. Actually, if you permit me, I'm going to go back to verse 4 and use verse 4 as something of a springboard to leap into verse 5 and conclude Paul's encapsulation of the gospel. Verses 5 to 10. But God, being rich in mercy, remember the beginning of the gospel that we began to study last week. God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. So, resuming Paul's presentation of the gospel message, which he gives us beautifully and clearly stated in verses 1 to 10. Last week, of course, we began with the bad news. You cannot tell the gospel completely in its entirety until you first must confront folks with the bad news, the sad condition of fallen humanity. Only when they appreciate that can they appropriate and appreciate and understand properly the good news which follows. This week, the good news. This week, continuing on with the good news that Paul introduced us to last week. You could say that this is um, a classic New Testament passage of salvation by grace through faith. We're coming up upon what? The 503rd anniversary of the Protestant Reformation from when Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door at the Castle Church in Wittenberg, October 31st. A, one of the greatest movements in history that was all about bringing the true biblical gospel of Christ out of darkness and obscurity. The Reformers would definitely teach this as a classic New Testament salvation by grace through faith passage. Salvation for human beings by way of the gracious mercy and favor of God through faith in the one and only source of salvation, the person and work of God the Son, Christ the Redeemer. And we should, uh, by the way, I always tell, well, I try to tell you folks from time to time, <clears throat> no matter how long you've been a believer, you need to preach the gospel of Jesus to yourself every day that you live. Once we are born again, we do not set the gospel aside. Christians should proclaim the gospel to themselves every day that they live, as well as proclaim it to other folks. And this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, is primarily, there is some evangelism in it. You can use it for evangelism. But if, primarily, it's not an evangelistic letter. It's a letter written to Christian believers. And we're scarcely into chapter 2, and Paul is reminding us of what? The gospel. What it is, and what it is all about. I've recommended this book to you folks several times in the past. It's a little book called The Gospel Primer, a little paperback book called The Gospel Primer by an author named Milton Vincent. It's a magnificent little book. Get that. It's a very devotional book, but it is a book written for Christians. So the Christian believers, every day that you live on your pilgrimage through this world, you can soak yourself in the gospel of Jesus, which we should continue to do every day our journey through. Now, but God being rich in mercy, verse 4, because of His great love with which He loved us. Now we dive into the text, verse 5. Begin to unpack the remainder of this passage, the gospel passage by way of verse 5. Because of His great love with which He loved us, He loved us even when we were dead, spiritually dead in our transgressions. He made us alive. He, God the Father, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice here Paul circles back around to his original hard statement of verse 1, which began, you were dead 
spiritually dead, before your conversion, before the new birth. All human beings are rebels, cosmic traitors against the high king of heaven. You enter this world, ironically, spiritually dead. He circles back around to that. You were dead, spiritually dead. But, giving us the good news, he confronts us with the active grace of God on our behalf. We are dead. We cannot help ourselves. We cannot grant ourselves life, spiritual life. He uses the word necros, as I gave you last week. It's almost a bit of a crude word. It can mean corpse, a carcass. That's how spiritually dead we are. The corpse cannot raise itself or help itself in any way, can it? Only God can do that. Only God can save us. Only God can grant spiritual life. Only God can raise beings from spiritual death. This is all a work of God in and by way and have His divine plan in and by way of Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. Or you could translate this as, He, God the Father, co-made us, co-brought us to life, along with God the Son, the Messiah, the Christ. Or, along with Christ, He, God the Father, made us alive. Now, this phrase that we translate into English, made alive together, is one word, one compound word in the Greek. Sedzopoeo. Actually, sudzo, forgive me. I get my pronunciations wrong from time to time. Sudzopoeo. One compound word in the Greek that we translate as made alive together. And many Bible scholars believe that Paul was inspired to coin this phrase himself. He may have created this word himself under the inspiration of the Spirit. So what does he mean by made alive together? To raise up to life together. Two persons co-jointly making people alive. Made alive together. He's saying this, the Father and the Son specifically. Now our conversion is a work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's interesting, he focuses here on the work of God the Father and God the Son. But our salvation is a Trinitarian work. God the Father devised the plan of salvation and decreed it. The Son at the perfect time in the divine plan took upon Himself a human body and a human nature, entered history, and performed the work of redemption to win our salvation and the arrival at the Spirit of the Spirit sent by the Father and the Son. He applies the work of God the Son to the souls and hearts and minds of humanity. So our salvation is a Trinitarian work as God is three and God is one in his nature, in his essence, in his being. But Paul focuses here on particularly on the work of the Father and the Son. He's saying the Father and the Son together have given believers new life. The Father and the Son together have made alive together, have brought people from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Father and the Son have raised us to new life from spiritual death. It's all the work of the grace of God. All the work of the Father and the Son here, specifically in our behalf, while we were still dead, hapless and hopeless in our old sin nature. So Christian believers before conversion, he reminds us that we were dead, spiritually dead, like all of the rest of fallen humanity. Believers first had to be made alive from the dead before they could believe. And God did that together with Christ. This is why salvation is by God's grace alone. And I'm speaking of the Reformation. This is a perfect time to mention one of the great battle cries of the Reformation from the five solas. Salvation is by the grace of God alone. Sola gratia in the Latin. 
You are saved by the grace of God alone. And we'll encounter a few more of the solas in this passage. By grace you have been saved. This is one of the most oft-repeated statements in the Bible, and it is one of the most important truth statements that we will ever be confronted with in the Bible. By the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, can humanity be saved, restored, and recovered. By grace you are saved. By grace you have been saved. Karete este sesos me noi, in the original Greek. Karete este sesos me noi. In many ways, grace, the grace, the favor, the mercy of God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, this is really the key truth. This is really the key concept, the key idea of this passage. His grace extended to us. Christ, according to divine plan, I'm backing up and um, rehashing to a degree the truth that Paul has given us in Ephesians. Christ, according to an ancient divine plan, the most ancient of all plans, devised in eternity past. Christ, according to divine plan, entered history at the perfect time according to the plan, lived His perfect life, performed His perfect ministry, performed His atoning work in our behalf, died and rose for God's, according to Paul, predestined people, at the time when they were all dead, sinful, rebellious creatures who do not deserve God's grace and yet have received it. That's why it's grace. That's what makes it favor and mercy. Because God is a loving God with a loving and gracious nature. God forgives. God gives life. God restores. God imputes righteousness onto people and into people who have no righteousness whatsoever of their own. Those who had rejected his rule as creator God, the high king of heaven, and who had treacherously rebelled against him, deserving judgment. Folks, he's saying to us yet again, all of humanity's hopes rest upon the grace of God. Every hope we have or could possibly have, it all rests upon the graciousness, upon the favor and the mercy of the God who is merciful and has a loving nature. And as I say so many times in our prayers, He is our only hope, and He is more than hope enough. I went back and forth this week on um, wanting to compare and contrast another uh, presentation of the gospel that Paul gives in another one of his letters, to compare and contrast the presentation of the gospel that he's giving us right here in Ephesians chapter 2 with perhaps another encapsulation of the gospel message that he preaches in another letter. And I want to do that. Um, we'll read through it fairly quickly, but he gives you another wonderful, very concise, very clear presentation of the gospel in his uh, letter to young Titus. So if you want to join me there, I'm going to read through Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. And you will find this quite familiar. Titus chapter 3. Verses 3 to 7. For we also once, that is, we Christian believers, I'm reminding you of what we all were before our conversion. Another gentle reminder to Christian believers of the gospel. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Does that sound familiar? It's what he's just given us in Ephesians. But when the kindness, 
the graciousness, the mercy, the favor, the kindness of God our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration. He's talking about the new birth and renewing by the Holy Spirit, which He poured out upon us richly, plusios, the most intense word for wealth in the Greek language. That's how rich God is in mercy, unimaginably, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and that being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs, ruling and reigning in the kingdom of heaven that he's speaking of here. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for mankind. Does this sound familiar? Another wonderful, clear, and concise presentation of the gospel, similar to what he's giving us here. In Ephesians, you have been saved by grace. Saved, sozo in the Greek. It means rescued, recovered. Saved. And just about any way you can interpret the word. Sozo, saved. What do you mean by saved? Well, we went over that last week now, didn't we? We are saved from the justice of God that we all deserve. We are saved from the ultimate and final justice of God, which every sentient being in this universe, past, present, and future, will face. Spirit being or human being, yes, there is such a thing. And it is an ultimate reality and an ultimate reckoning. There is a day of judgment. And we all deserve God's justice. Realize how merciful and gracious He is? He saved us from His own sentence, which we richly deserve, by the by. It's as if the judge sentenced the traitor to death, disrobed, stepped down off the bench, and paid the price of the traitor's treason his very self. He took our judgment upon Himself. That's mercy. That's favor. That's graciousness. Saved from God's final judgment. Don't forget you're saved for something, too. We're saved from the justice of God that we deserve, but you're saved for something. Don't forget that. You're saved for God. He claims you. He saved you. He bought you by the work of His precious divine Son. We are saved for Him, to have a relationship with Him. As the Old Westminster Catechism says, to know God, encounter God, experience God, glorify Him, and enjoy Him forever. You're saved for His kingdom. You're saved for His plan that will be enacted in the future. Don't forget what you've been saved from. Don't forget what you've been saved to or for. We are saved for His eternal kingdom. We were also saved from, let me remind us of what Paul taught last week, you're saved from the world. You're saved from an evil fallen world that will be judged. We are saved from what Paul calls the flesh. That is your old sinful nature that drags you down to judgment. You've been saved from that. And we have been saved also from who? The prince of the power of the air. The originator of evil who is on his way to judgment. Or as the old theologians say, we're saved from the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
Only God's magnificent, rich grace, as Paul would say, in and through Christ, offers this salvation. In Christ and Christ alone. Another sola of the Reformation. Sola Christos. Salvation for humanity comes in or by way of Jesus Christ alone. All religious roads do not lead to Rome. Only one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No human being will see God the Father except by way of or through me. Jesus Christ. John chapter 14, verse 6. Verse 6. And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is an absolutely astounding thing to say. And that's a bit of a head-scratcher. What in the world is this man saying? Raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him, with Jesus, with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute, I'm not up there. I'm here in this dark, troubled world. What in the world is Paul saying by this? Raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places, in, in and with Christ. Folks, here again, he's confronting you with one of the deepest and most profound truths in the Bible. The deep and profound truth of the believer's union with Christ, which I believe is something of a mystery, and is going to remain something of a mystery until we really are both physically and spiritually there in the eternal kingdom, established when all things are summed up in Christ at the end of the divine plan. Now, I do believe we can accurately interpret what this means here in a broad meaning. There's several interpretations we can take away from this, which I believe are good and accurate. But exactly to completely plumb the depths of what Paul means hereby, you have been raised up with Christ, and you are now as good as seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I believe to a degree that will remain something of a mystery until the divine plan is all wrapped up and the new heaven and new earth comes, then we will truly understand what he's saying here. But let's chip away at it nevertheless and do our best. And raised us up with him in Christ. Clinton Arnold, from his commentary, writes, and I believe he hits the nail on the head on a good solid interpretation here. Quote, believers are made alive through a profound dynamic union with Christ, which has enabled them to participate in the benefits of Christ's resurrection and exaltation. End quote. I believe he's absolutely right. He's speaking of a very profound dynamic union that the believer has with our Savior, which we now enjoy, which we may not completely understand. And this union, by way of the new birth, by way of Christ's work, it enables you and I, as recipients of the new birth, to participate in all of the benefits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in all the benefits of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of Christ's atoning work in our behalf, when we receive the new birth, when we are made alive, we are raised. That's one way you can interpret it. When you receive the new birth, the spiritual birth, because of Christ's work, you are raised up from what? From spiritual death to spiritual life. You're raised up into life. I believe also, Paul at least to a degree means, that because Jesus Christ bodily and physically rose from the dead, conquering death, Christians who believe now have 
new spiritual life in Christ, but they will be bodily raised from the dead as well. You and I will be bodily raised from the dead one day, even as Jesus Christ our Lord was bodily raised from the dead two millennia ago. And our resurrection day obviously is coming when Christ returns. Now don't get me wrong. When you experience mortal or physical death in this life now as we do know it, you don't cease to exist. You don't. It's a matter of geography. It's a change of location. Absent from the body, spirit, present with the Lord. Your soul, your spirit, the core of your being, the real you, if I can use that expression, simply changes location. And you enter the throne room of the universe, a place perhaps out of time and space as we know it, to be in the personal presence of God and the saints who have gone before us. Your body, yes, your body experiences real physical death. And it goes into the ground, planted as a seed, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But at the summing up of the divine plan, when Christ returns, the body is what? The body is raised, immortal and incorruptible, to be alive forevermore. So the body and the soul are reunited once again, and they are never parted again for eternity. You are raised spiritually, and you are raised physically in Christ, with Jesus, because He rose from from the dead, you will too. You have been raised in and with Christ. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. My, my, that's a magnificent statement. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't think we can quite plumb the depths of that. As to what that means. Folks, theologians for 2,000 years have tried to wrap their arms around that one and have had difficulty in doing it. And far greater hearts and minds than mine have come up against this truth and have ended up scratching their heads to some degree. He is saying that in some very deep and profound way, because of our union with Christ, because of the new birth, the Christian believers are as good as with Jesus Christ on His throne in the throne room of the universe, the seat of cosmic authority over all that there is. You are as good as there. How's that for being secure? How's that for having a future and assurance and a hope? This statement right here alone should enable you to lay your head on peace in your pillow of the nights, no matter what you are encountering in this world in this life's journey. You are as good as seated with Jesus Christ the King next to His throne, next to God the Father, in the throne room of the universe, ruling and reigning above all, perfectly executing His divine plan to the last dot of the last I, to the last detail, maintaining it, sustaining it, keeping it all humming right along from Alpha to Omega. So therefore, What have we to fear in the end? That's right, nothing. If you really believe what this man is teaching, if you really believe the truth that he is proclaiming, after you are a recipient of the new birth, it does all get better from here, and in the end, it all will be well, beyond your wildest imaginings. That's what this means. God, according to the ESV Study Bible, you folks who have that Study Bible, I like to draw your attention to the excellent notes it gives. Seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The textual note on this verse 
in your ESV study Bible states, God has allowed His people even now to share in a measure of the authority that Christ has. I believe that is true. Christ delegates His authority to His church to spread and promote and protect His kingdom in this world as it is now until His return at the end of the divine plan. I believe that you can interpret from seated with Christ Jesus. He delegates His authority to His church, His body, in this world to see to His kingdom in this world until He comes back. God has allowed His people even now to share in a measure of the authority that Christ has seated at the right hand of God, a truth that would be especially important in old Ephesus with all of its occult practices. And a lot of people who live in pagan cultures around the world at this very moment need this message, that God is the real spiritual power, that Christ is the real spiritual authority and power and ruler above any other and all other, real or imagined. Not only have believers been raised spiritually in Christ, will be raised physically in Christ on the last day, but in a very deep and profound way, which, yes, I do believe is still something of a mystery, which we do not fully understand or experience yet, Paul asserts that Christian believers have been, have been enthroned, have been raised with Christ in the heavenly places. I think he's saying, you really are in a very deep and profound way as good as there already. Do you understand that? That should motivate absolutely everything you say and you think and you do. That fact should be the lens by which you view all of life and the world around you. You are as good as there already because of His perfect, completed work. Right? Our final destination He's speaking of, our final destiny in eternity, our position with our Lord in His kingdom is secured now. And it will all be perfectly completed, consummated, and realized in the future when the divine plan draws to a close. Your future destiny, Paul is saying. Don't worry, Ephesian believer. Don't worry about all those 50 fake gods and goddesses and all of those fake, phony spirit beings and the spirit beings that are real that I will warn you about and that you'll have to do battle with. Don't worry about that. Your future destiny is secured in Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, in the seat of cosmic authority, now you are as good as there. Next to him in the seat of cosmic power and authority. I quote Clinton Arnold again from his commentary. So what does this mean for you? What does this breathtaking statement mean for your daily life, the daily life of the believer, the, the life of the reader of this letter? Remember, Paul told us that Jesus Christ is seated at God Almighty's right hand. He has supremacy over every power, physical and spiritual. By virtue of the believer's union with Christ, Christians now share in His power and His authority over any and all other spiritual powers or authorities. Any powers or authorities that you can think of. This is an enormous and comforting truth for people who are facing dark or difficult times, for people who are living or have lived in a culture where they fear spiritual powers where they were afraid of things that go bump in the night in their pre-Christian existence. They are now linked in a dynamic union to the powerful and the loving Lord of the universe who is superior to all forces of evil." End quote. Verse 7, "...in order that in the ages to come 
he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So this is part and parcel of what you're saved for. You are saved to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The original meaning and purpose of humanity. I quote the ESV study Bible again. Ah, good. Some of you folks are referring to it there in your lap. Excellent. I love the way this textual note interprets this verse and expresses it. It's wonderful. Hits the proverbial nail on the head. This verse answers the question of why God lavished such love upon his people. So that they will marvel for all of eternity over the incredible kindness and love of God. It will take all of eternity to fathom God's love. And those who are saved will never plumb the depths of it. End quote. Beautiful. Exactly what Paul is saying here. You are saved to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And it will take you an eternity to plumb the depths of the infinite God. And because He is infinite throughout eternity, you will never reach the limits of God. Or His graciousness, or His love, or His mercy, or His very person, His very being. Do you, do you understand that? What a mind-bender that is? Eternity. An existence which knows no end. An existence in which there probably is no such thing as time. Certainly not the way in which we mark it now. And you're never going to get to the end of Him. You are never going to get to the end of Him. He is always going to be a delight and a surprise and a source of something new and exciting and refreshing. That's what you're saved for. That's what you're made for. We are to be trophies, if I can be blunt. Now, sometimes we say, oh, so-and-so's a tro trophy wife or whatever. That's not a good thing. This is a good thing. <laughs> to be a trophy of God Almighty is a good thing. To be a monument to His mercy and His grace is a good and powerful and beautiful thing which you are going to enjoy for an eternity. That's what Paul's saying. You folks are all monuments. You're all trophies to the loving grace of God. And it will take all of eternity for you to appreciate this and then some. Right? Trophies, monuments to the loving grace, mercy, and favor of God in eternity for eternity. God's purpose, according to this letter, in saving a people for himself was to bear his image and to put on display his grace, his mercy, his love, all flowing from his perfect character, all flowing out of his perfect divine plan, completed and perfected for all to see forever and ever in the eternal kingdom. That's what it's all headed for. That's what it's all about. And as Paul wrote earlier in this letter, to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His glorious grace, so that God can point to me, so that God can point to you in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of His grace and kindness toward us. I'm no great shakes. But it's really something to think that Jesus Christ will... Scott over there. He's here by my work. By my mercy and by my grace. I took that hapless creature. 
and look at him now. And it's all his work. It's not mine. It's not ours. And there we will be, experiencing him in ways that we now yet can't imagine. Glorifying Him and worshiping Him and praising Him and enjoying Him and enjoying one another and enjoying the perfect universe and all that it's going to contain. And there we all are. Monuments and trophies of His grace. And if the pagans could see us as we are going to be, they would be tempted to fall down and worship us as gods and goddesses. That's what the redeemed are to be. Bright, shining as the stars in eternal glory for forever and forever. That's what you're about. That's what your salvation is about. That's what your life is about. That's what it's all for. That's where it's all headed. It's magnificent what this man is telling us here. Now, the pagan Ephesians, this is something interesting historically that I'll give to you. Oh, man, would this have resonated with these people. This idea, this concept of being a trophy or a monument to a god or a goddess or the god that they have now begun to know and to believe in. In the days of antiquity, in pagan cultures in the Mediterranean, and in particular to the Ephesians, the Ephesians were, oh my goodness, was Ephesus a center for, for paganism. I think, there were, of course, there was the temple of Artemis and Diana, more on that later, of course. There were about 50 other gods and goddesses that were patron or patroness gods or goddesses of the city. They were all obsessed with magical practices in the occultic arts and all of that. But at that time, pagans had monuments and had trophies to the gods and goddesses in their temples. In fact, when the Greco-Roman armies marched off to war and conquered enemies and took plunder, a lot of that plunder, or a certain percentage of the plunder, was brought back and put on in display in the temple, giving credit to whatever god or goddess was their patron or patroness on the battlefield. So if you visited a pagan temple, a lot of these pagan temples were really like museums to the history of their community or to the history of their country. And incredible amounts of wealth were poured into these temples and stored in the temples. In fact, a lot of pagan temples in antiquity acted as something of a bank or uh, something of, of a treasury. These folks would have understood immediately this image of a person being a trophy or a monument to God. In this case, to God's mercy and God's grace, right? So what is Paul saying? You are all trophies gained in the cosmic battle the ultimate battle that has been won by Christ. You are all monu real monuments and real trophies to the one true living God who is real. You're a monument and trophy to the final battle, the cosmic battle, won by Jesus Christ, God the Son, according to divine plan. And we are to be monuments and trophies to His grace in ages to come. Aeonion eperkamai. In fact, literally translated, that means you are to be a monument or trophy to the grace of God for all ages yet to come past all ages, which we, of course, interpret as forever or in eternity. For eternity, you will be a monument to God's kindness extended towards us in Christ Jesus. Kindness is Christotes. Christotes kindness means beneficence in action. 
gentleness, to do act of good to somebody, an act of kindness. The grace of God is not passive, it is active. Everything in Christianity is active, it is not passive. This kindness is active. The active beneficence and kindness of God towards sinful humanity, giving us redemption and new life, in and through and by way of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Peter O'Brien, a theologian, writes in his commentary, The Apostle Paul's thought has gone full circle here. He began by speaking of God's mercy and love as the motivation for his initiative in saving people. Paul then draws the reader's attention to the mighty rescue which arose out of God's gracious actions. Verse 5, and here he concludes by declaring that God's lavishing his mercy on sinners is to serve as a perfect demonstration of his grace for all succeeding ages to come. End quote. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. So here we have another of the New Testament, the Bible's greatest and most famous truth statements. How many times have we recited this to ourselves or to others? It is the very heart, it is the very core of the gospel message. For by grace you have been saved. Grace is kadis. It means God's favor. God's favor to those who do not deserve it. God's favor to those who cannot earn it or merit it. This is what saves us by divine plan through Christ's work. God's favor towards fallen human creatures, those who have rebelled against Him, those who have committed cosmic treason, those who have broken His perfect moral law and deserve judgment. But the ESV Study Bible makes another important point which I appreciated this week. Paul speaks of grace to be understood as a power. Isn't that interesting? The grace, the favor of God is an active power. An active power in this way. That God's grace not only offers salvation, but God's grace secures salvation. It is an act of divine power in our behalf. By grace you have been saved. Sesos meinoi. This is written in Greek in the present tense. The present perfect tense, by grace you have been saved. Sesos menoi. What does that mean? It means this. Paul is saying your salvation is completed. Your salvation is perfect in Christ. Your salvation is permanent in Christ. Paul is stating that the act of grace and favor of God is perfectly powerful to save and to save you perfectly and to save you permanently. This salvation in Christ is completed, permanent, and the Christian believer enjoys all of the benefits of this deliverance and this salvation. That's good news. Our salvation, he is saying, is fully secured by Christ and fully secured in Christ. Saved, sozo, again, saved for God, for His glory, for His kingdom, to know Him, to experience Him. Saved from His judgment that all sinners and rebels against God deserve. Children of wrath, as Paul called us before. Children of wrath bound for the final judgment, as he will proclaim in Romans chapter 5, verse 9. By the by, I feel the need to say this very quickly and then move on. Some people want you to believe that some human beings might receive something called injustice from the hands of God. That is impossible. 
that is utterly and entirely impossible. Human beings at the hands of God, at the end of the day, on the day of days, receive one of two things, justice or mercy. Nobody receives injustice. No one. All human beings, all angelic beings, will receive the justice that they deserve, or they will receive, receive mercy that we do not deserve. No one will receive injustice at the hands of God. That is impossible. Now, save through faith. The word he uses there for faith is pistis. We traditionally translate that as faith in English. I want to bring this to your attention. Save through faith. He means you personally. When the New Testament authors use the word faith, they're speaking of a one-on-one -on -one relationship to God or to Christ. It's not general at all. It's very specific. It's very personal. He means a personal trust, a personal confidence that you have in Christ Himself personally as your Savior, as your Redeemer, counting on Him for who He is and what He has done in your behalf. It's very personal. Faith is a confident trust. It's a confident reliance. It's an absolute trust and confidence and reliance upon Christ Jesus. And as the New Testament constantly tells us, it is the only means by which a person can receive salvation, which brings us to another sola from the Reformation. Sola fide. Faith alone in Christ alone by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone, soli Deo gloria. And that message, that accurate message, comes to us by sola scriptura, by way of the Word of God alone, and not the fairy tales and myths and legends and traditions of sinful men. Right? And that not of yourselves. Human beings being fallen cannot save themselves. How many times can the Apostle confront us with that fact? It is all a work of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Sinful humans can contribute nothing to their own salvation. And oh, how we try to. Do you notice what he's saying here? By grace you have been saved through faith. You are saved. You are justified by way of your personal faith and trust and confidence in Christ. But you couldn't even come up with that by yourself. Belief and faith is a gift. Even our belief and our faith is a gift which enables us to believe and have faith. He has to give dead corpses life, and when he gives a dead corpse life, then that dead corpse can believe and have faith and have life. 100% and beyond, it is all the work of God. I love to hear people, when you, when you confront people with this truth, they start to bristle. Even people who have called themselves good believers for many, many years, oh, now wait a minute, I did something right. I chose Jesus, I believed, I had faith, and this book tells you that's right, but if he didn't give you the ability to do that, you wouldn't have done that. You're dead. Only he can give you life. Even faith and belief is a gift. It is all a work of the gracious God. It is a gift of God. It, the process of salvation, the divine plan, the divine work of salvation, is a gift of God, a gift from God, not something we accomplish ourselves. 
Faith no less than grace is a gift of God. It is all a gift of God. Folks, I'm hammering you with this so that you can go and hammer others with it because people are losing this. They're losing this. People who call themselves good, faithful, evangelical, biblical believers, they're losing this. This is our everything. Everything is at stake here. You do not save yourself. You cannot in any way, shape, or form. It is all a work of God and a gift of and from God. Soli Deo Gloria, the last sola that I'll make mention of today. The one that Dan Cecil and I love so much and like to toss back and forth at one another and other people. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That's where Paul is headed in this passage. By the way, music lovers, you should know this. Johann Sebastian Bach, the fabulous composer, on all of his extant musical manuscripts, at the top or at the bottom, you will see SDG, or you will see Soli Deo Gloria. Everything that man wrote was to the glory of God alone. Western civilization. The civilization for which we are fighting for, even as I speak which is dangerously, dangerously threatened by a darkness such as this world has seldom seen. Not as a result of good works, so that no one should boast. He simply and clearly says in verse 9, another one of the most oft-repeated passages in the Bible, not a result of your works so that no one can boast or brag. There it is, a face value. It's very, fairly simple to interpret that one now, isn't it? This salvation gift of God is not accomplished by our works or our efforts. Salvation cannot be earned or accomplished in any way by human beings. If this were the case, what? We would all be boasting and bragging about it. We would all try to claim some sort of credit, some sort of glory for our salvation, and oh, how many still try. True salvation, true salvation, true salvation gives God and God alone all the glory. Sali Deo Gloria. No human being can boast before God. Total humility is required before God. On the day of days, on the day of days, for those who are redeemed and for those who will be damned, there will be no boasting or bragging before God. There will only be abject humility, one way or the other. Salvation is a merciful, gracious, undeserved gift of God's merciful, gracious favor. Devoid, as Arnold, I like this comment Clint Arnold makes in his commentary, it's devoid of any claim that anybody could possibly make upon it. It's not based upon any form of human merit, end quote. It's all a gift. More than enough reason to worship the Creator, Redeemer, God for eternity. Now the last verse, verse 10, of the Gospel as he gives it here in the beginning of this chapter. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Here's where your good works come in. You want good works? Here's the good works. 
For we are His workmanship first, created, worked out in Christ Jesus for good works that we're supposed to be performing, which, by the way, God prepared beforehand (laughs) that we should walk in them. It's a magnificent thing that he says here in this verse. It's enormous. Once again, salvation is not based on works, but the good works that Christians do, the good works that Christians do in their lives, are to be a natural result, a natural consequence of God's salvation work in and through you. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. That is, those believers born of God, redeemed, saved by God's grace. You're a work of God. It's His work. You've been crafted. You've been made. You've been sculpted. You've been created by God. His work. His handiwork. His workmanship. His skill. His talent. His project. According to His plan. His plan enacted in Christ. All by God's skillful, powerful. If I can use this expression being bandied about these days, intelligent design. Here's your intelligent design. You bet it's intelligent design. The source of all intelligence, transcendent divine intelligence and work. There is no such thing in this universe as an accident. That is a complete and total absurdity. It is all by intelligent design. The design of the Creator God. Redeemed human beings are His work, His artful, creative masterpiece work to bear His image in eternity. It's simple as that, but as profound as that. And yeah, you've been saved for good works. You're not saved by good works, but you have been saved for good works. You have been saved to do good things. He says so clearly. For the purpose of doing good. For the purpose of working good. Doing good things which mirror and reflect God's nature and character. To do good in this life. To do good in His eternal kingdom. To work out good in the new heaven and the new earth that is coming. Right? We're not saved by our good works, but once saved by Christ's work, Paul says, yes, you are to do good works, to do good things, which grow out of your salvation, which is a divine gift. Now, this statement, which God prepared beforehand, it's a very rare compound word in Greek. You very rarely find this. Proetoimesen. Proetoimesen means to do or prepare or to work out something prior, previously, beforehand. Very rare word. Here's the sovereignty of God here. The divine plan. It's all part of a plan. It's all part of a plan. It's all been planned out. Down to the last detail in eternity past. And you're just part of the plan which is humming right along, right on schedule. There's the sovereignty of God. That's what he's confronting us with again. It's all a plan. By decree in eternity past. In eternity past, God chose a people for himself to be in relationship with himself, to enjoy him forever. And all the way back there in eternity past, before he spoke the universe into being, he marked out your path. He marked out your way in this world. He marked out and planned your way in this world, in the divine plan. And every good work that you will do, 
was already there before the beginning. This is a path of good works, which, watch, should characterize the life of every single solitary Christian throughout their Christian journey, and it's all to bring glory to God. And this on into eternity. Good works that we should walk in them, he says. What does he mean by walk? It's a way of life. Your good works after your salvation are now to be a part of your life. Your daily life walk, as we say. Good works are to characterize your life. Good works which reflect the nature and character of God. That's what your life is to be all about now. In conclusion, give the last word to Clint Arnold. He has a great little paragraph at the end of this passage in his commentary titled, On Display to the Glory of God. On Display to the Glory of God. Don't forget this. In this life right now, if you really are redeemed, you are to be on display for the glory of God. And in eternity, you most certainly will be on display for the glory of God. He writes, Our redeemed lives are now on display to the glory of God and will be on display to the glory of God. Just as Paul has already declared that God's choosing and redeeming work was ultimately for the praise of the glory and grace of God, chapter 1, Paul expresses the same end and the same goal for our salvation here, chapter 2. God's salvation work puts on display the wonders of His grace forever. The wonder of His character, His personality, His will, forever. Just as Paul told the Roman Christians in a letter a few years earlier, Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. The lives and conduct of God's redeemed children are to be a reflection of the divine parent. Our lives are to be a living canvas portraying the glory of the Creator and the Redeemer. End quote. Amen. There you have it. There's a meaning and purpose of your life right there. So when you hear other people out there joking or carrying on about, hey, 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 what's the meaning of life? Hey, hey, hey. I know. I can tell you. There is such a thing. I can take you right to it. You've got the answers. You're the only ones who have the answers. You've got the only answer. Give it to them. They're foundering in darkness and spiritual death. Is that not obvious? Give them light. Give them life. Save the day, happy Christian warrior. It's what you're here for. For just such a time as this. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for the divine plan and our place in it. Please give every person in this room an opportunity with someone somewhere this week to give them this passage and what this passage says and the ultimate realities that this passage proclaim. Give everyone an opportunity to do so, to exult in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.
and live their life in and through and by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the divine plan which you have so graciously given us here to guide us on our way to our eternal home, seated with Jesus Christ our Lord in the heavenly places. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Hymn number 61 we dismiss with great, very brief.